Hi, I'm Paul Johnson. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Life Support. On our drive home from the press conference, we turned the radio on and we were hearing ourselves on the radio and the the radio, you know, you know the term, I don't know the term. The host was saying something like, call in and, and tell us what you think about this this family that is going to forgive the person. Yeah, the question of the day life. was, would you forgive the man who killed your son? Yeah. That is Wendy Johnson, who is the wife of our host, Pastor Paul Johnson. And once again, Paul and Wendy are sharing the very personal story of the homicide of their son, Taylor, today on Life Support. Everything you do from then on is different. One of the detectives, I think his name was He was Derek. a golden boy. And all we can do right now is come Extreme together. Extreme domestic violence, multiple rapes. Life Support is a co-production of Ridgewood Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota, where Paul is the lead pastor, and Five Stone Media. I'm Five Stone Media Executive Director Steve Johnson, and with full disclosure, also the brother of our host, Paul. And now let's join part two of the conversation with Paul and Wendy Johnson. I am so glad you've chosen to join us on Life Support and this is such a unique opportunity for us to help you find a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ through suffering and trauma. There's pain in our world, and you're either experiencing it or you're interacting with someone who is, no doubt. So I hope that you can be encouraged. I'm talking with my wife, Wendy, this week, a little bit of a departure from what we normally do, but we're just talking about our story and how God has interacted with us. And if you're just catching up with our story, our 21-year-old son Taylor was taken from us seven years ago in a homicide, and there have been all kinds of ripple effects to that, but we have also experienced God's grace. And where we left off last time is we had been through an eight-month kind of waiting period to find out what had actually happened. We knew the place. We didn't know who or how. It had happened because the police needed to keep that confidential. But now it was finally time to make arrests. And we got a call on a Wednesday morning. And I remember I was at work, and the call that they said would never happen came and said, the driver is not talking. We want you to come down and down to the precinct. And Mr. Johnson, would you talk to him? And I said, sure. And of course, at this point, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just trying to be an obedient citizen, and I had a lot of Mountain Dew and Holy Spirit and Red Bull in me. And so I got my car and drove down there, and they ushered me into a room just like you'd see on Law & Order. And there was a kind of a hardened gang type sitting there named Rocky, which, as I look back now, is kind of funny if you want to think of it. But he wasn't going to say a word to me. The detective tried to get him to uh, cooperate, and my job was to ask him to plead with him to answer questions, and he just wasn't going to. And so I did my best to tell him about God and share some of the gospel with him, and then we left. And I remember the detective just apologizing right and left, and I'm sorry we wasted your time and so forth. But they were very kind, and so I went home. And later that night, around 10 or so, the phone rang again, and this time it was, can you come down and talk because we have the shooter in custody? And again, you know, being dutiful, uh, when he started to pray, I got in the car, drove down there about 30, 35 minutes, walked in, and 
had to wait. And so I kind of sat around the police precinct, talked to the detectives. Uh, they showed us the room that they had been using for the headquarters of the investigation for the last eight months. It w- I was shocked. There were 35 computer stations. And I said, well, this is for all of your cases. No, he goes, this is for your case. So they had done this massive undercover operation. So we waited and waited, and finally they came down, and one of the detectives said, listen, he, he is talking, so here's the thing. He wants to say he's sorry. And I remember thinking to myself that there is really no choice for me to go up and talk to him. I did have a choice. The detective had said, you don't have to, but I knew as a Christian and theologically that he had been a sinner just like me, and we're both in the same boat, really. And without Christ, I would be just like him, and and Christ is our only hope. And so I knew I needed to go talk to him. And I expected to see another gang member like the first one, but I walked in and really saw a scared 23-year-old kid um, in his orange jumpsuit sitting in the corner. And he said he was sorry, and you know he was crying and, and so forth. And I just remember looking at him and saying, I... We're going to work on forgiving you. And I said, when we're all done with this process, would you be interested in finding out more about how God can change your life? And he said he would. And he got up and he came across the room. And I'll never forget this moment. Um, I remember looking over to the detective and saying, are you going to do something about this? Because this man who's bigger than me is coming toward me without handcuffs on or anything. And he just reached out and gave me this huge bear hug. And so there we stood hugging each other in the middle of this room. And, you know, I went home and, and told Wendy about this, and we had to go do a press conference was the next big step. And we met with the detective or the sergeant who was in charge of the media, and Wendy, as she always does, prayed. Her name was Jennifer, and that really had an effect on her, I think. Yeah, I remember um, just she brought us into her office before the press conference and was just kind of giving us the rundown of what it was going to be like to prepare us. And I knew that you were going to be reading a statement and knew that she was going to be talking and figured my role at that point was support. And so just asked her if I could pray again. And I think all along the way, whether it was with the detectives or whoever was a part of this journey, I know that in some form they were putting themselves out on the line. And not only did we want to pray for their protection, right, but we wanted to pray over them and have them experience what it's like to be prayed over. Because if they've never um, experienced prayer or been in a church or um, heard anything about Jesus, I, I wanted them to experience that in some form. So, so yeah, it was... I think that came out later in the press conference that we realized the effect that it had. Well, she broke down and mm-hmm. began to cry at one point, and the media was badgering her. Did mm-hmm. you know this young man? Why are you crying? Mm-hmm. And I think it's because she had been with you praying, and she was very touched by that. And she developed a heart for, for Taylor and mm-hmm. a heart for our family. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just really strange. Before I became a pastor, I spent a lot of years in the media, and so I'd been on the other side of those cameras mm-hmm. before, but it was quite surreal. Mm-hmm. And we got a note later on that day, I don't know if you remember this, but mm-hmm. from one of the newscasters that had been there from one of the Chinese stations in mm-hmm. Vancouver, which there's a huge Chinese population, he just said, hey, I'm a Christian, 
And I just want you to know I appreciate what you said. And mm -hmm. then even more bizarre is the family of the man who was arrested, Jesse, his his sister reached out to us. Mm -hmm. And uh, that began a relationship with his family mm -hmm. that carried on until we reached the courts. And so to, to speed ahead and to, to make a long story short, we got through the press conference and then became the, the, the legal part of it became the focus then for us. Mm -hmm. Do you remember um, on our drive home from the press conference, we turned the radio on and we were hearing ourselves on the radio and the the radio, you know, you know the term. I don't know the term, but they call them hosts. Hosts, I believe. okay. The host was saying something like, "Call in and and tell us what you think about this this family that is going to forgive the person." Yeah, the who question took of the day life. was, "Would you forgive the man who killed your son?" Yeah, like I just sat because there that and was went, a big thing of our our talk was we're gonna we want to forgive this kid because right. Christ has forgiven us. Right, and I think that was the even the heart of our adult children as well at the time. All of us right away we were still in pain but the whole point was okay well we're going to pray we're going to pray whoever took taylor's life to jesus we're going to pray that they can encounter christ and turn their life around i remember one of our daughters just i'll never forget this she looked at us and said there's no reason that two young men should lose their lives in this yep and so that's kind of the tact we took and it yep. wasn't that we were being naive or we're happy or not angry or, you know, frustrated. But again, if as believers, we know that we are sinful. We know that we are at um, odds with God. We mm -hmm. cannot have eternal life on our own and we all need to be forgiven. So who are we to withhold forgiveness from someone else? Mm -hmm. And we began to work through this uh, laborious legal system and it took a long time. We had waited eight months and it was n another long period of time before there was any kind of trial. Thankfully, the man's name was Jesse. Jesse pleaded uh, guilty, although they pled him down to uh, man manslaughter, which was frustrating for us because, you know, that didn't seem like a fair charge considering what we lost, but we just tried to leave that in the hands of God. And we we inherited a prosecutor who was, you know, would have made law and order seem tame. Uh, he, he, he was a veteran. He was good at what he did, but I'm glad I was on his side because he was pretty gruff. But you kept praying for him, too, which had a huge impact on him. And he didn't know what he didn't really know what to make of that. <laughs> I remember at this, you know, and and so we, we finally Got, came to the courthouse the day that we were going to do the the sentencing and we were we had the opportunity to read our victim impact statements to the judge and it was really an emotional day Jesse's family was there mm -hmm. I remember his 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 dad came out and gave gave me a huge hug and mm -hmm. said he was sorry this had all happened and my heart really went out to Jesse's family because they were hurting too through all of this and really, Wendy, I think that that's when you really began. That was the first time you even saw Jesse. Mm -hmm. We'll continue with Paul and Wendy in just a moment. But I want to mention that the video version of this interview will air immediately following this program. And you can find it through the site fivestonemedia.com or 
go to YouTube and find the Life Support channel. Not only this interview, but all of the Life Support programs. And now, back to the conversation with our host, Paul, and his wife, Wendy. And so we, we finally got, came to the courthouse the day that we were going to do the, the sentencing, and we, were, we had the opportunity to read our victim impact statements to the judge, and it was really an emotional day. Jesse's family was there. Mm-hmm. I remember his, his, his dad came out and gave, gave me a huge hug and mm-hmm. said he was sorry this had all happened, and my heart really went out to Jesse's family because they were hurting too through all of this and really Wendy I think that that's when you really began that was the first time you even saw Jesse Mm -hmm. and then you had an opportunity to extend your own hand of forgiveness to him yeah it was I remember um, thinking through the fact that you had seen Jesse you had been in the same room with him Um, but I was so worried about seeing him for the first time and um, so when we got to that courtroom uh, you know, he was in an orange suit, and he's behind the desk thing with the glass, and and we're in the in the court there, and we're reading our victim impact statements, and are reading we're reading our statements um, on behalf of our children as well, who who weren't going to be there. That would have been too traumatizing for them. We were learning new things even that day that we had to process that were really hard. Um, and Jesse, I remember um, getting up and he read an apology letter to our family. And I just remember watching his demeanor. And, um, you know, he came from a, you know, hard life. And um, he he had a goal to, you know, work his way up in the the gang. And um, that was going to be his, you know, his motive, employment, and his, his dream kind of. And just remember watching him, and I remember um, as he was reading this statement or this this apology letter, he started to cry. And um, there were a box of Kleenex right in front of him, and instead of grabbing a Kleenex, he took a shirt and he grabbed it and pulled it up over his face and wiped his face. And I was just taking it all in. Um, so as we as we left, the the um, judge asked us to all take a recess, and we went out to the lobby, and. Um, I just broke down in tears and I wasn't prepared for that because I was in business mode and I've had to be in business mode before and I just wasn't prepared for all of this and I was trying to figure out what was going on in my head and my heart and what I was remembering is this video that you and um, Adina and Jeremy and Taylor had made for me and Mackenzie before we were blending our family and um Wendy had been abandoned by her husband. I had lost my first wife to cancer. So we were already this kind of crazy blended group. Yeah, and God put us together. But I remember you made this video for us. And when Taylor went into the screenshot, he was 11 years old. And in his eyes, I saw, I need you. I need love. Will you help me? And so in the courtroom, I was seeing the same thing in Jesse's eyes, and it was kind of freaking me out. <laughs> and I broke down, and I went to our our attorney and just said, I know this may sound crazy, but is there any way I can um, I can react to his I, – I want to be able to say something to him. He's written us this letter. I want to be able to respond. Can I respond, and can I hug him? 
And he threw his hands up in the air and was like, who are these people? And he said, I'll go find out from the judge. And um, I hadn't even talked to you about it, but I just really felt like the Holy Spirit was just like really prodding me. And so was talking with you. You said, absolutely fine. And then he goes and he talks to the judge and he comes back and he says, okay, so um, after the judge reads um, the sentence, then we will, he will call you forward and you'll be able to respond to Jesse's letter, but you can't, you can't hug him. He has to stay behind the glass. And I said, okay. And so I just remember us, you know, waiting and hearing that sentencing. Um, and then he invited me up and I just know that I thanked the family. First of all, I thanked Jesse's family because they could have chosen to read their victim impact statements at that time too, but they chose not to. And I felt like that was God's graciousness to us because that would have been really hard to take that day. Um, So that, and then I also thanked Jesse for writing that letter and just was really letting him know that we are, as a family, are praying for him, that this is going to be an opportunity um, while in prison to turn his life around and really see that these gangs are leading to death. They're not leading to life, but Christ can lead to life. And so was just thankful to have that opportunity. Yeah, that was an amazing day. And the police officers were very gracious again. And I remember one of them saying, could I exchange Christmas cards with you? <laughs> and I said, yes, that would be fine. And that was his way of saying, you know, I want to be friends. Mm-hmm. So we had an opportunity before we moved back here to Minnesota um, three and a half years ago or so Mm -hmm. to visit Jesse. We had an opportunity to spend almost a whole day with him to uh, share the gospel with him. God has given us opportunities through uh, a a program in the province of British Columbia that allows us to communicate with him. Uh, The the man who was running that program, little known by the uh, BC government, was a former pastor who understood exactly what we were trying to do. So we have that opportunity. But this is something that's really never gone away, and it's going to keep, um, you know, in a way it's the, the gift that keeps on giving. Mm-hmm. We found out uh, through the um, through the government of British Columbia this past uh, couple of weeks ago that he was beginning the, the possibility of parole already. And uh, they were starting to move through that process. So you have to kind of revisit your forgiveness and, and justice and realize that God is a God of justice. But it, but our children are still suffering, and mm-hmm. I think that's what makes it the the most difficult. And before this happened, you know, we were a fairly normal family, although we had been through some trauma already. This really put a couple of our kids over the edge, mm-hmm. and that makes this, you know, an ongoing thing. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, for, what I'm going to do here in the last couple of minutes is is first I'm going to say what I've learned through this, and I'll let you mm-hmm. do the same. Mm-hmm. Um, what I've learned th- about people who are going through trauma is that they are only really interested in people caring. They 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 don't necessarily want everybody to try to make them feel better. They just want to know that you're there for them. They get overwhelmed very quickly. Um, and when you have someone in your church or a friend or a family member, you need to just be there with your presence mm-hmm. and, and ask them what they need. And if they say they don't need anything, then you just need to respect that. I've also learned that God has been working in this situation the whole time. 
And, I mean, you and I have had a chance to speak in prisons. We've mm-hmm. had a chance, you've had a chance to speak to women's groups. Mm-hmm. All opened up because of the opportunity to interact with the the, the man who shot Taylor in, mm-hmm. our, in our situation there. And I've also seen God work in the hearts of, of people. And I've learned much more about Christ. I've learned much more that he is, is there. He never forsakes us. And I think it's deepened my love for him, and it's also deepened my empathy for others and given me skills Mm -hmm. to navigate through trauma with people that I wouldn't have had before. Mm -hmm. I think, too, for me, it's just when I look back and think of the people that really ministered to me in that time, it was people, like you said, that spent time with me and were present. They wept with me. They mourned with me. Um, They didn't sit there and try to fix it. They didn't try to Christianize it away. Um, they just sat with me in my pain. Which is the hardest thing to do. And those are the people, sometimes aren't the people that you're expecting. Yeah. Yeah. But they show themselves to be the most mature. Yeah. And then I think I've also learned to, um, you know, we hear a lot, think before you speak. But when someone's in trauma, it's super important to do that because there are a lot of well-meaning people out there that just want to offer something to you. But sometimes they say things that can be really hurtful. And for me, I had um, been Taylor's stepmom for 10 years, but I didn't view myself as a stepmom. I viewed myself as that Taylor was hand-chosen for me, and I was hand-chosen for him after Jody had passed away. And so when someone would ask about how you were doing or the kids were doing, they would um, be so concerned, and then they would just say, well, you were just his stepmom. And so I just have a real heart for people that are walking through this journey that um, are navigating that side of it. So part of it is saying to myself, they're a well-meaning person. Um, you know, they do love me. They they just misstepped here with a few words, you know what I mean, and not not holding on to it so it's hurting my heart, but... Well, we've certainly learned a lot, and we have a lot more to learn, and our story is not over. There's still very difficult spots Mm -hmm. in it, and we know there'll be more difficult spots in it, but we do have the hope of eternal life. We know that uh, Taylor was a believer. He's with Christ, Mm -hmm. and we know that, um, and we also know that God isn't going to, you know, forsake us, Mm -hmm. but trauma is real, and The other thing I would just say is that just because people in your church or in your friend group or at work look like they're doing okay does not mean they're doing okay. Mm -hmm. I've talked to a lot of people on this show that have lost people uh, through suicide and other ways who looked like they were doing okay. Mm -hmm. So don't be afraid to ask um, to to just, you know, nose in a little bit, get involved, um, get to know them. And and, and, and and develop relationships with them and and because people are not going to just come out and tell you that they're dying inside, mm-hmm. but they look like they're doing just fine. And we're right. really good at that in churches. Mm-hmm. We are good mask people. Yes, we are. So, well, Wendy, it's been, it's been good to have you. And, you know, our story isn't so unusual. Maybe the, the moat, the, the, the motif of it is, but, you know, many of you have been through trauma as well. In Genesis, we read that Joseph was introduced to tremendous suffering. He was abandoned by his brothers, forgotten in prison, 
And yet he realized that God was at work the whole time. And that's what Wendy and I have realized as well. In Genesis 50, 20, he looked at his brothers who had come back and he said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And so though your trauma or suffering may feel like an overwhelming fog or a deep weight on you, remember that God intends it for good, that it will maybe not take your pain away, but that may help you keep your spiritual balance. So I'm so thankful for this amazing promise of God. I'm also thankful for our many partners that make this program possible, Faith Radio, Five Stone Media. If you'd like to watch a video version of this show, you can log on to my or to fivestonemedia.com. If you'd like to check out Ridgewood Church, you can log on to myrwc.org slash life support, and we'd love to talk with you. I would mention, too, that if you're struggling in your own life, if you're struggling in trauma, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is available to you at 1-800-273-8255. Join me on Twitter at Pastor Paul J. We share all kinds of interesting things there, and we do deal with trauma. So glad you listened to Life Support, and we'll see you next time. The video version of this interview will air immediately following this program. And you can find it through the site fivestonemedia.com or go to YouTube and find the Life Support channel. Not only this interview, but all of the Life Support programs. Life Support is a co-production of Ridgewood Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota, where Paul is the lead pastor, and Five Stone Media. for listening to this life support podcast these conversations are available because of listener support you can make a gift now at myfaithradio.com to avoid missing future editions of life support subscribe to the podcast today at itunes or your podcast player and thanks for sharing this audio link with a friend and grow the impact of life support